You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Good morning. My name is Marty, and I'm one of the pastors here. And some of you know that I just got back from the Middle East, where we took a team on a missions trip. And it was a really powerful experience. There were, we got to hear stories of Jesus' love and deliverance in the midst of really difficult situations. We got to participate in um, education, helping people understand more about the scriptures. And then we got to be involved as people, we prayed for people and people experienced freedom from some things that had bound them. We also had a chance to preach in the churches and had an opportunity to strengthen some of the churches. We're gonna tell you more about the trip at the beginning of August, but if you want to talk to me about it, I'm really happy to talk about it. And I also want to thank all of those of you who prayed for us and gave. We really appreciate your support. This morning, we are continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount called The New Humanity. And a couple of weeks ago, we moved from the section of the sermon that's called the Beatitudes, where Jesus talked about the character of a person who's living in sync with the kingdom. Character like pure in heart, uh, poor in spirit, merciful, humble, peacemakers. And we moved to a second part of the sermon that Pastor Sam called a couple weeks ago the do attitudes, or talking about what kind of behavior do people who are living in sync with the kingdom have. And this section has a series of sayings, and the sayings start with an Old Testament saying, and then Jesus takes that saying, he deepens it, and he rounds it out the application of the law, and he gives instruction on how to live in love in light of God's kingdom. And last week, we looked at the sixth commandment, do not murder, and Jesus tells the people who are listening that Anger is a kind of murder, and it's a serious breach of love for others. This week, we are looking at two more sayings of Jesus. In the first one, Jesus quotes the seventh commandment from Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. And then, a second saying, he quotes Moses in Deuteronomy 24, 1, on instructions on how to divorce your wife. So these are very light holiday weekend topics, (laughs) but we will look at them today. And so we're going to be reading from Matthew 5, verses 27 to 32. And if you can stand with me in honor of God's word. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. God, we ask that as we 
I approach this text this morning that your spirit will be at work illuminating what you mean by what Jesus said and that you will be opening our hearts to hear that and to apply this word to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we dive into this sensitive topic, I want us to check our hearts. And there are probably at least two groups of people here who are going to find this sermon difficult. The first group are those who struggle with lust or perhaps have committed adultery. And if you're in this group, know that in Jesus, there is love and forgiveness. And I invite you to come to the text this morning with an open heart, knowing that Jesus brings good news. The other group are maybe those who have not struggled with lust and perhaps have been wounded by someone who, ha- who does. Or maybe you're a person who judges people who struggle with lust or who have been divorced. And I want to invite you to come to this text with a merciful and a compassionate heart, Remember that just a few verses before, Jesus says this. He says, blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. So let's start in verse 27. In verse 27, Jesus begins with the commandment not to commit adultery. And his listeners would have nodded their head in agreement, right? This is good. You're right, Jesus. This made sense to them. In Judaism, sex was considered to be part of the marriage covenant. But then Jesus says something that likely made his listeners then and now uncomfortable. Anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in in his heart. And Jesus is saying that what we think in our heads impacts the core of who we are. It impacts our motivations and our desires. Now, I can imagine that this made his listeners begin to squirm. And Jesus is particularly addressing some issues that impacted men in the ancient world and still today. Now, when it comes to lust, I've heard people rationalize. It really doesn't matter what I think about or what I watch. It matters what I do. And we as humans have this strong tendency to focus on outward actions. We judge ourselves based on how other people see us behave. But Jesus didn't make this distinction. Jesus cares about what's going on inside us, and it's as important as what is seen on the outside. The last time my oldest daughter visited us in Vancouver, my mom came to visit. And for some reason, what we were talking about triggered a memory for my mom, and she began to whistle an old Dean Martin tune called Standing on the Corner. Now, if you're old, you may know this song, and it's a light-hearted song about a man watching beautiful women walk down the street and lusting after them. It was written by Count Basie, and some of the words are on the screen. And we found the song on Spotify, and we listened to some of the choice words, and my daughters were outraged at my mom for whistling this song, and they said, Nona, this is a song about sexual harassment. And uh, so how many of us, particularly those of us who are young women or have been young women, have experienced the shame of being objectified when we're just walking down the street. And this is one of my most humiliating memories when I was 15, and an older man shouted out some really coarse things, and I just felt so much shame. And one of Basie's lines in particular outraged my daughters, and it's this line, you can't go to jail for what you're thinking. This is not what 
the way Jesus thinks about lust. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. To Jesus, this is serious stuff. Take decisive, drastic action against this practice, even if it seems pleasurable, even if it seems an essential part of your life. It is, in fact, ruining your life. So let's define lust. Lust is to set your heart upon something, to crave it, to long for it, to desire it. And you can lust after many things. You can lust after food, after money, after relationships. And the word lust that is used here in this passage is mostly used in the New Testament in the context of greed and idolatry around money. So lusting after money might look like fantasizing about what we do if we got a raise or if we won the lottery. Or maybe, maybe we're just trusting in our money to give us security and meaning in our life. And when money becomes our idol, it in a way it becomes our God. It's also to ha- possible to have the same kind of greed and idolatry around sex. Now Jesus here isn't talking just about someone who sees someone and finds them attractive and has an initial uh, response to someone beautiful. Instead, he's talking about what happens when we look at another person, when we begin to crave them, when we form fantasies about them and desire to possess them. That is lust. And sexual idolatry can look like things like pornography and masturbation or pursuing sex outside of marriage or believing that you can't be a happy and whole person without having sex. Now, in condemning sexual idolatry and lust, Jesus is in keeping with what was already written in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament directs people against lust of all kind. This is the 10th commandment, do not covet. And the book of Proverbs also counsels against this. But But the Old Testament also gives a sense that lust can be controlled. So think of the story of Joseph uh, and Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39. Joseph was able to resist and to flee. Or on the opposite side, King David, when he saw the beautiful Bathsheba, he, was, he, he gave in to his lust. He took advantage of Bathsheba and, hurt her and killed her husband, and he is condemned for it in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. In the New Testament, Joseph, the husband of Mary, is an example of self-control. He exercised it, and it says he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And when he took Mary as his wife, he had no sexual relations with her until Jesus was born. So Jewish people would have understood that lust was not good. But Jesus' teaching on lust has two significant differences from Jewish thought in his time. And many rabbis blamed the woman, who according to them enticed the men. And so they had many rules to keep women separate from the men. But Jesus places the blame squarely upon the man. It is his lustful look that is a sin. The one who is looking is responsible, not the one who is being lusted after. So secondly, Jesus' solution to this problem was novel. So instead of isolating women or directing them to cover up, Jesus directs the men to change their thinking. 
Not only that, Jesus goes on to demonstrate the possibility of having close friendships with women without sinning, as he had many women as friends who traveled with him and were his disciples. Now, to blame women for men's inability to control their lust is a long-standing practice, and even the Canadian courts did this for many decades regarding rapes. So, it was the woman's fault. What was she wearing? Was she suggestive? Did she contribute to the situation? And this was also a common practice in the church. And when I was young, even into the 90s and 2000s, the problem with lust was put on women. And if women would dress differently or act differently, there wouldn't be a problem. And so we were given the directive uh, not to cause a man to stumble and to cover up. And this led women and young girls to believe that it was their fault, and they felt shame about their bodies. But Jesus didn't buy into this blame-the-victim stance. He is clear that the problem with lust is the one who is gazing. The problem with lust for Jesus was male desire. And this problem called for self-control, for the one who was viewing the beauty rather than the one who possessed it. Now, we live in a very different society than Jesus. We live in an egalitarian society. And in our society, this lust is a problem for both men and women. Men are also objectified in our culture, and women can objectify men. And so although Jesus just addressed men, today this applies to women as well. And it's interesting, but a recent study suggests that 76% of young women, so women under 30, view pornography at least monthly, and close to 96% of young men. Those are very staggering statistics. And I think there are three main reasons why Jesus sees lust as not in sync with God's kingdom. First is the holiness of bodies. Second is the commandment to love our neighbor. And third is the bonding power of sex. So let's talk about the holiness of bodies first. We can see in the, in the creation stories and in the rest of scripture that humans, are so, humans, our soul and our bodies are intimately connected. So we're not a soul inhabiting a body. We are, we are embodied souls or souled bodies. And the Apostle Paul in his letters in the New Testament talks about the body of a follower of Jesus as being God's temple. The body is not bad or irrelevant. It's core to who we are. And so what we do with our bodies is supremely important, and it affects our spiritual health just as our spiritual health affects our bodies. Paul tells us in Romans 12 to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Humans are incredibly valuable, and we are made in the image of God. And how we treat our bodies and how we look at other people's bodies matters. And so to treat another human as an object defiles them. Theologian Phyllis Isabel Shepherd talks about the sin of objectifying and violating other bodies. And she says this. She says that because bodies, including women's bodies, are made in the image of God, to mistreat them, to demean them, to um, treat them like objects, defaces the image of God. And that should make us angry. It wounds the person who's being objectified, and it corrupts both the perpetrator and the victim. And recent studies bear this out. 
men who use pornography have lower views of women than men who don't. And there was a meta-analysis done that combined 22 individual studies from seven different countries. And they found a statistically significant difference um, between higher porn consumption and increased sexual aggression, regardless of whether the pornography being viewed used a violence or not. And the researchers argued that this is a consequence to the objectification and degradation of women existing even in scenes without violence. Pornography has also a huge impact on women. It pressures women to adapt their appearance and behavior to fulfill other people's fantasies. And this mars the image of God. Lust degrades people made in the image of God. And that is why Jesus says it's better to gouge your eye out than to look at another with lust. The second reason why uh, lust is not in sync with God's kingdom is one of the greatest commandments is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when we're living in sync with God's kingdom, no desire is to be acted on without love towards others. And so lust draws sexually from another person, not for, for connection and intimacy, but for self-gratification, to meet our own needs. It's self-centered. I don't care if I'm hurting you or myself. And lust is our feeble attempt to fill a void in our lives, to feel better about ourselves, to have power over others. And this is a void that God wants to fill. And this is why lust is equated to idolatry. The third reason is that every time a human has a sexual experience, whether it's with a real person or a fantasy, it creates a bond. And when we use pornography, we're bonded to that image. When we lust after someone, when we play out scenes in our mind, we create a bond. And that is why Jesus says we are committing adultery in our hearts. So research has also demonstrated that pornography addiction in men decreases their satisfaction in their marriage, it decreases their emotional attachment to their wife, it causes them to have higher expectations of their wife, and, and they are far less willing to be in a real relationship. The long term, long term this means for men, increased loneliness and relational isolation and relational deterioration. And long, the long-term implications for people who are married to those who are addicted to pornography is also devastating. And pornography and lust violate the marriage covenant. Many women who discover their husbands are involved in pornography addiction experience what is now called betrayal trauma. It's a kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I've sat with many women over the years who've ex whose experience of being married to someone with a problem with lust is similar to women who are married to someone who's had an affair. Pornography is also a significant factor in divorce. So lust is not a big deal issue just because we all struggle with it. When we engage in lust, we are making our desires, our wants, the most important thing in our life. And Jesus reminds us here that when something other than God occupies a central place in our life, that is idolatry. And we risk finding ourselves eternally separated from God. It is a big deal. And that's why Jesus uses hyperbole to describe it. Better to pluck out your eye and cut off your hand 
Pastor Dale Bruner reminds us of this when he says, it's better to go limping into heaven than leaping into hell. To refrain from lust requires radical action. Now, it's one thing to know that lust is bad, that it devalues the body, that it's unloving, that it creates a bond with someone we're not married to. But it's another thing to stop it. And becoming a person who looks and acts like Jesus, becoming someone whose behavior is in sync with the kingdom, is not a simple thing. It's not a simple matter of knowing what is right and wrong. It's not that easy. And the Bible talks about sin as an enslaving force. And the sin of lust is such a thing for many. And for decades, I've been working with women and men struggling with lust and other kinds of sexual brokenness. And these habits are very hard to break. And the MRI studies reveal that viewing pornography activates parts of our brain the same way that substance addiction does, things like alcohol and cocaine. And what lust does is it creates well-worn pathways in our brain. It trains our bodies to crave the release of hormones, and it provides a temporary relief from anxiety and shame and and self-hatred. It's often a way we've coped with life for 10, 20, or 50 years. The Apostle Paul understands the enslaving power of sin when he writes in Romans 7, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And when we find ourselves helplessly enslaved, Jesus brings good news. And what Jesus has done on the cross, his work on the cross, can set us free. Jesus calls us to repentance, to turn from our sin and to turn towards him for power and for freedom. Now, for most of us caught in these addictive behaviors, freedom doesn't come in an instantaneous spiritual moment. There's not some kind of magic prayer you can pray and all your uh, addictions are gone. Freedom usually comes over time as we walk with Jesus as we confess our sin to God and to others, as we share our story and allow our friends to come alongside and support us and learn, find, learn to find new ways to deal with our anxiety and our shame and our self-hatred. And so for some of my friends, this has meant radical action, like giving up their smartphone, not having internet in their homes, no longer living alone, um, meeting regularly with others for support, And they have made costly decisions in order to be free. So if you're someone here and you struggle with lust and pornography or other kinds of sexual addiction, I encourage you not to hide, not to live in shame, but talk with someone. Talk with a brother or sister in Christ, a pastor, um, your community group leader. Ask them for help. If you're not ready to talk to a human yet, I have also put some uh, resources that are online that you can look up as well that are good resources. So let's briefly look 
at Jesus' next saying regarding divorce. So if you think we haven't had enough, here's the next one. <laughs> and remember that all of these were in one sermon, if you could imagine sitting and listening to everything Jesus had to say. Um, but there is some overlap between these two sayings, and that's why we're doing it together. Remember here in this next saying that Jesus is quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 24.1. And so Jesus says this. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, to understand this saying, it's helpful to look at some of the background of marriage in the scripture, as well as some of the contemporary conversation around divorce uh, in Jesus' day. So in Genesis 2, we see the description of the first marriage. And God brings... Um, the first woman to the first man, and the man responds in delight. And he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And in verse 24, it says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So in the Bible, marriage is described as a one flesh, indissoluble covenant between a man and a woman. And so for those of us who are married at our weddings, we made promises um, promises to our partner. And these promises were not meant to be conditional on the way our partner performed. They were meant to be promises that we keep and our spouse was meant to keep theirs. And when we both keep these promises, um, it provides safety and security and allows deeper feelings to grow in a marriage. A marriage is a gift from God and it's a symbol of God's relationship with us, God's people. It's a holy covenant. And in Jesus' day, the marriage covenant had eroded. And it was no longer this mutual covenant. And instead, the man had the power. And his, if his wife did something that didn't please him, he could end his marriage. And there was an argument at the time about for what reason could man dissolve a marriage. And the Jewish rabbi Shammai and his people said that only adultery was a legitimate reason for divorce. But the Jewish rabbi Hillel and his people said that you could get a divorce for any reason. If your wife had a bad temper, if she talked to a stranger on the street, if she burned your dinner. And uh, so, <laughs> so both, but both sides assumed uh, that marriage was dependent on the wife behaving properly. And they only disagreed on what was bad enough to get rid of your wife. And so Jesus enters into this argument in Matthew 19, 4 to 10, when the Pharisees ask him this question. They said, said to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So Jesus, are you with Shammai or are you with Hillel? And so let's read Jesus' response to this. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. 
So when Jesus responds to the Pharisees' questions, he appeals to the creation story, to this one flesh bond in marriage. And Jesus refuses to side with either's argument about how bad does a wife have to be before you can divorce her. Instead, he calls on spouses to be faithful as mutual covenant partners. And faithfulness is not dependent on the other one's behavior. Theologian Beth Falker Jones explains the significance of what Jesus was saying. So in the patriarchal culture of the ancient world, adultery was understood as a property crime against husbands who suffered the misuse of their property, their wives. But adultery is not a property crime. It's much worse. It's a violation of what it means to be human, a breach of the covenant partnership. Women aren't property Women are covenant partners. Women aren't to be used. Women are to be loved. And men can commit adultery. This would have been shocking to Jesus' hearers. But as people living in sync with the kingdom, we don't commit to being sexually faithful because our partner is. We are faithful because our partners are beloved of God. And we recognize that our faithfulness to them is a sign of God's faithfulness to us. Jesus is for marriage and against divorce. And Jesus believes that marriage is a sacred, holy union and divorce is against God's design. But in Matthew 5, it does appear that Jesus goes along with Moses' permission to allow divorce for adultery, although this is not required. And in those cases, remarriage is also permitted. This is not the final word of what the New Testament has to say about divorce. And it appears that the definition of unfaithfulness is expanded by Jesus in Matthew 19 when he uses the word, Greek word pornea, which means all kinds of sexual unfaithfulness. And by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 when he adds abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. So Scott McKnight, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, summarizes by saying that marriages are destroyed when one partner refuses to be with the other partner or is against the other. And when this happens, the covenant may be destroyed, giving grounds for divorce. None of us come to God or to marriage with perfect purity. And if we take Jesus' words about lust seriously likely all of us have committed adultery in our hearts. All of us are in need of God's grace and the support of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And divorce is never God's intention. As followers of Jesus, God desires to transform us into the kind of people who can be faithful, who can be loving, who can keep the covenants we make, But God is also merciful and gracious and provides for us pastorally as we live in a sinful world. And so although Jesus radically elevates the importance of faithfulness in marriage in Matthew 5, he also recognizes that we live in a messy world. And sometimes marriages will need to end because we need to be protected from unfaithfulness, abuse, and violations of the marriage. Divorce should not be pursued lightly, and a decision to break a covenant has ripple effects for our children, for our family and friends, and even for our church community. And so I encourage you, if you're in a difficult marriage, seek support and help. 
from counselors, from pastors. Don't be afraid to reach out. And early intervention particularly makes a big difference. I want to conclude this morning by saying that these sayings of Jesus are hard-hitting. And it is very difficult to live in the way that Jesus is talking about. But these principles are key to understanding what the kingdom of God is like. To Jesus, sexual and marital ethics aren't just getting the rules right. They're not arbitrary. They're not about outward appearance or condemning others. They're not controlling or shaming or negative about sex. They are about treating other humans with deep respect as image bearers of God. That is the focus of these commandments. So to live in sync with this gospel ethic, we do need the good news, the news that we are forgiven, that the power of sin is broken in our lives, that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And living out this ethic successfully is not about trying harder. We are very weak creatures. It is about being connected to the life of God. And we are entirely dependent on God's work in us in order to live in a way that is in sync with the kingdom. So let's pray and invite uh, God's power in our lives. So God, we come to you this morning and we want to acknowledge that we are broken people, that we have been unable to live in a way that is holy, in a way that honors others, that we are guilty of many things. We are guilty of lusting after many things, including sex, and that, God, we need your mercy, we need your forgiveness, we need your grace, and we need the power of your spirit to transform us, to live in a way that honors others, that puts you at the center of our lives. And so we ask you to fill us, fill us with your spirit. We ask you to cleanse us, cleanse us from shame, cleanse us from self-hatred, God, enable us to experience your love and to grow through it. And God, I also want to pray for those of us who are married. Enable us to be faithful to one another, to love one another, to honor one another, to delight in one another. And I pray specifically for those who are in marriages that are struggling. Again, God, we ask for your power to intervene and to bring life and restoration. We trust that you are at work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things that we do monthly is we come to the Lord's table, and I think this is a perfect morning to be coming to the Lord's table. And this, is, this table is a place where we remember and thank Jesus for his death on our behalf. And we look to Jesus, we look to his risen presence, and we ask him to nourish us through the bread and the cup which he said were his body and his blood. And as we look around and we see each other, we extend grace and compassion and kindness to one another. And then as we leave this place, we look out to a needy world that needs to hear the good news of Jesus as well. And so this is a time to come and to receive God's grace towards us. And this bread and juice are more than symbols. They're more than symbols of something that happened 2,000 years ago. But they're Jesus' promise to us.
to be with us, to forgive us, to save us, and to love us. And so as we come to the table, we also make promises to love Jesus, to follow him, and to live obediently to him. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I want to invite the communion service to come forward. And I just want to explain to you how we do communion if you're new to our church. So as you come forward to take communion, it means you are saying yes to Jesus. And so this is a table for those of us who follow Jesus, who live in relationship with Jesus. And as you come forward, we would ask you to do that row by row. So come forward when the row before you has come forward. Come and take the bread and the juice and then return to your seat. And you can, t- you can uh, take them with people who are in your pew together if you'd like or on your own. If you can't come forward, our team will come to you. So just to indicate that you'd like to receive um, the bread and the juice in your seat. And there's also a gluten-free option available in the middle. So let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you for offering us your body and your blood, for offering us life and joy and freedom. And as we receive this this morning, may we know your power and your cleansing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.